Hi, this is Karen Harvey, and you're listening to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio. You're opening a door and going, well, we can't find the talent. Well, if you really go back and look at systemic racism, you realize that most black people are first or second generation college students. We weren't allowed to no. go to, to, to Parsons for fashion school if you're second generation. So that means you have to put programs in place to account for that, right? Exactly. Is the talent there? 1,000%. You may have to take an untraditional route to tap that talent. Brandis Daniel is perhaps one of the most meaningful forces of influence in the fashion world today. Born in Memphis, Tennessee, Brandis knew at an early age that she was meant to do something big, something really important, but she just didn't know what it was. Like many of us, Brandis loved fashion from the earliest days of her childhood, but she never understood that she could have a career in something that she loved so much. After university, she finally found a role as a buyer for a regional fashion brand, and over the years there, she learned many important skill sets. But for her, this was just a step in the right direction. But it was not it. After a gravitational pull brought her to New York, she began to dip her toe into the industry and immediately noticed a huge problem. She could barely find anyone who mattered in fashion who was black, especially when it came to designers. As I was hearing her tell her story, I actually got chills. This woman who comes from such a place of kindness and perseverance, who was raised to bridge the gaps and to bring people together, focused not only on just solving the problem of a lack of diversity in fashion design, she was determined to change the narrative, to shift mindsets and create something very big and very meaningful from scratch that would allow black designers to have a career in an industry that they loved and truly wanted to contribute to. So, this entrepreneur, speaker, author, wife, and mother is changing the world, and we all need to take notice of this powerhouse, who I am so pleased to now call my new friend. Brandis's original perspective on being a proud outsider has been shared on many stages. She launched Harlem's Fashion Row in 2007, an organization that works to support and promote fashion designers of color. Upon entering an industry that is notoriously exclusive, she had to fight the uphill battle, but eventually, as most brilliant founders of very big things find, her vision and incredible hard work and her passion for supporting the designers of color she values so much paid off. And believe me, Brandis Daniel is not even close to being done. While this episode covers many pivotal moments in Brandis's career and life, she shares the time she received a mysterious call from a certain global activewear brand that likely changed the course of Harlem Fashion Row forever. Brandis has been on the TEDx stage. She's launched her own fund to support designers of color, and she's had superstars like Donna Karen and Ralph Lauren at her annual fashion shows. And Tom Ford recently participated in her digital offsite for Harlem Fashion Row, which has a very large constituency of designers of color. Not just anyone could have pulled this off, but Brandis has a certain presence and a magnetic energy that is impossible to resist. But more importantly, she has been hard at the work of the work 
bringing designers of color to the center of the conversation. And finally, the industry is catching up with her. It was my honor to have her in the studio and to have this particular and very honest conversation where neither of us held back. So please make sure that you listen to this, one of my most important conversations to date, and allow Brandis' life experience and journey toward changing the world wash over you. Also, please stay tuned through the interstitial as we will share more information about HFR and Icon360, her nonprofit founded in 2020 to address systemic barriers as this inspiring new initiative provides a way for all of us to contribute and make a difference alongside Brandis and Harlem Fashion Row. Brandis, I really am so delighted and I can't think of anyone I'd rather be with at 10 o'clock in the morning for a conversation like this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Karen, and happy birthday to you again. Oh my gosh. Well, let's not even go there. The numbers get very scary, but I'm, you know, I'm really excited that I'm still excited and able to have these kinds of conversations. So thank you so much again. And still full of passion. Like you can, it's it's always like oozing from you. So <laughs> thank you. You know what? I'm like, as long as we have passion. It, it's kind of everything, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's most of everything. And maybe we can talk about everything else that it takes here today. Brandis, I don't think I became aware of you until I saw actually maybe the Nike LeBron Harlem Fashion Row collaboration. And I was sort of like, and where have I been all this time? And then I started looking back and I was like, no, no, no. I knew of you. I know that Harlem Fashion Row is probably 13, 14 years in the making at this point. Is that right? Yep. We turned 14 this year. That's incredible. Before we get into what it is and what your vision was for it, I really want to say what a privilege it is. And I'm especially impressed that what you've created was not born out of a knee-jerk effect of the recent moments, but a real vision and a real understanding of the dearth of Black talent in the fashion industry, frankly, across the board, but particularly from a design point of view. And I really want to celebrate that because, as you know very well, while a lot of good work is being done, sometimes it feels just a little bit performative or just a little bit like racing to catch up with something that has been badly needed for some time. So it's really huge. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I really believe in whenever you get to the party, (laughs) like, let's just get it done. It doesn't matter when you get there, as long as you get there, you know, and I think right now I want people to get there and stay there. Yes, and we will talk a lot about that. But I do think 
we have to really credit the pioneers who see it before everyone else sees it and work three jobs and bang on doors and beg people to recognize what they want to do. And you have so much courage. This is not an easy industry to break into. Although who could possibly say no to Brandis Daniel? Lots of people care. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. Lots of people. I mean, you have some of the most incredible partners, LeBron, Nike, Donna Karen, so many designers of color, Tracy Reese, you're, I don't even know how you find time to do everything. I mean, there's a digital fashion summit one day, there's a Harlem fashion row, fashion show a week later, you're giving so much cold cash away through your philanthropic efforts and your partnerships that is so badly needed in the pandemic. So I really don't understand how you find the time for real. We talked about passion earlier, and we are so passionate about something. You just kind of figure it out. That's what happens. It really is looking at, okay, this is what needs to be done. And I'm always like, I'll figure out how later. I just need to know what needs to be done. And then we'll work through the how. I'd love to know a few things. I know you're from Memphis, but I don't really know kind of how you grew up, what that was like. And so maybe you could share a little bit about that. And what was Brandis Daniel like at five? And did she know where she was going at that moment in time? It's so interesting that you would say five. My daughter is five. And She is so much like me. She is constantly negotiating with me. She is relentless. She don't understand the word no. She always thinks there's a way around it. And so I was very much like that. I grew up in a home where faith was a huge part. I grew up, again, you said in Memphis, Tennessee, in the South. My dad actually was a pastor of a church. He started a church in our living room where I had to dress up to go to the living room. Of course you did. <laughs> of course you did. I've never seen someone more relentless than my dad. Like he, whether it was him starting an insurance business or he started like a telephone jack business, he owned a Hallmark shop and he didn't even understand no. It was as if it meant nothing to him. And so I kind of grew up seeing his tenacity grew up in a house where my mom was totally supportive of him and really made the family feel like, okay, your dad's not not crazy doing all these things, but that what he's believing for is actually possible. And so we kind of participated in his faith so often. And that is really kind of the foundation of who I am. You know, hearing you say this, um, one of my questions later on was when I watch Instagram live that you're doing, or when I watch your TED talk, you know what it takes to turn on that energy with people. And I would guess being in the living room with your father preaching and sharing and really being with that group taught you something about lifting people up, I guess. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I come from probably one of the kindest uh, families I know. 
my mom would be the one like picking the little girl up who's walking home from school and trying to figure out like where she lives and how she can help. And it's kind of just a part of who we are because it's how we grew up of figuring out like how do we help someone else. And I think kindness is just a way of life. It's everything. And what about your mom? Where was she in all this? My mom was a substitute teacher when we were younger. So she was a stay-at-home mom. I think all the way up until I got, my sister got in kindergarten. Once my sister was, my youngest sister was in kindergarten, my mom started to work. And so she ended up becoming a teacher. And then she, my mom went back for two masters, one in Braille. In Braille. And another, in Braille. So my mom knows how to like teach and read Braille. I don't know, I don't know three people that know Braille. Like that's amazing. <laughs> so- as you were going through school and, you know, certainly not about the word no and really finding your own path and journey, what were the things that were occurring to you as you, let's say, entered junior high school, high school? Like, what was happening as you started thinking about, gee, what am I going to be? What do I want to do? It's interesting because now I see so many, like, junior high and high school students and they come up with some of the most fabulous careers ever. But, you know, we knew you can be a doctor, you can be a teacher, you can be a lawyer. What were the careers that we saw around us? They were, you can be a nurse. Um, they were very limited to what felt like was possible or I think maybe approachable for the people in my neighborhood. And so I wanted to be a doctor. You know, I love kids and and so someone said, you know, you love kids. You, you, I think you should be a pediatrician. And sometimes you hear what people say and you kind of take it on as your own dream. But I think if anyone had really been watching me at that time, they would have known that I had this like innate love for fashion. And my aunt, God bless her, her so she passed away um, two years ago. But my aunt actually saw it. She was the only person in my family who subscribed to the Vogue and the Harper's Bazaar and would basically, as soon as I came into her home, would like, go look at my new magazines. Here they go. Like, check these out. You know, she didn't do that for anyone else. So there was something that I think she saw that I would kind of get lost in those pages, looking at those images. So it was there. And then I would, you know, I couldn't afford much, but I would go and buy these shoes and, you know, bling out the heels with my glue gun sitting on the floor. <laughs> I love that. So you could kind of see that there was this like innate love for probably fashion, because I think there's fashion and there's style. I think my love was more for fashion. But no one knew that I could actually get a career in that. So it wasn't something that was promoted as a career choice. Then when you were deciding to go to college, did you sort of pursue that career? Did you start to discover that there was a way for you to kind of get in there or... Did you pursue something far more, let's say, traditional? So when I graduated, my mom said, you can go to any school you want in Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, no Parsons for you. Because right? I get a 25% off discount right? because I'm, a, I'm an educator. Yep. And so I didn't even apply to any schools outside of Tennessee and it's a regret because I really wish I had gone to an HBCU. But I went to the University of Tennessee as a pre-med major. It wasn't until after the first year 
of going to all these pre-med classes that I'm like, this is not what I want to do. Mm. And so I went to our career center, told them, this isn't what I want to do. They're like, what do you, I have no clue. Yeah. So I filled out like a full, like, you know, you do like the the career kind of questionnaire sure. where they're trying to figure out what your interests are and everything led to retail and fashion. And that was how I changed my major. And they had that. They actually had it. What school was this? This is University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. Don't know if I've been to Chattanooga. Yeah, not many people have been to Chattanooga. It just so happens, though, that the person who was over that program, she had just, I think, retired or left as a Levi's executive. She was a buyer at Levi's, had left there and was over the program. So that was incredible. So then you you learned about buying and merchandising. Is that kind of what happened or? I learned about buying and merchandising there. And then I just did a lot of volunteering. I went to the mall in the city. I can't remember who the mall was owned by, but I went there and asked them if I could actually do all of the visuals throughout the mall. (laughs) So they allowed me to do visuals in the mall. I did a lot of kind of volunteer things, whatever people would let you you do, allow me to do. I did it. Yeah. So what was your first job out of school? What'd you do? So I graduated and I went through what I call the wonder years. <laughs> I love was... that. Did you, do you actually know about that show? Did you ever watch the wonder years? I did watch the wonder Wait, years. Wait, you're not, you're actually not old enough to know the wonder years. I am old enough to know the okay, wonder years. Okay, my friend. I don't know. <laughs> but that, that was actually an amazing show. But anyway, please continue. I went through the Wonder Years where I graduated, I moved home for a little while. I worked for, you know, retail, Sam's Club. I worked there for a bit. I worked filing papers. And then I moved to Atlanta. And when I moved to Atlanta, I worked for an insurance company selling insurance. And you probably made all the money you needed doing that. So you could start Harlem Fashion Row. I bet you were brilliant. That's a grind. That's a grind. It is a grind, (laughs) but I didn't like it at all. So I left there. I worked for a home builder Mm -hmm. and was really on track. I kept getting promoted while I was there. And I was getting scared every time I got a promotion because I felt like I'm about to get stuck. And it just so happened that the company closed, and I saw that as my sign. And I was like, okay, this is my moment to go back and pursue what I really love. And then what happened? And then I moved back to Memphis and went through probably one of the worst depressions I've ever gone through. Trying to, you know, when you know you have so much inside you, but you're working part-time at Brooks Brothers Folding you know, shirts, and you working part-time, filing papers. It was like I was being smothered. And while I was there, actually, at the part-time job filing papers, this guy, O.C. Body, I've never talked to him since then. I always hope that he hears, because I bring his name up on every interview. But he said to me while I was, like, on the floor, shoving, you know, filing papers with my college degree, he said, what are you supposed to be doing? And I instinctively knew what he meant. And I said, I am supposed to be working in fashion. And specifically at the time, I wanted to be a buyer. He said, have you applied to Catherine's, which was in Memphis, based in Memphis at the time? Of course. And I said, I I did. I didn't hear, I didn't get any call back. I keep calling them. They're not replying to me. He said, let me see your resume. And this man worked in HR for West Point. And said, Brandis, all I did was do yes, no, maybe piles, and your resume would go in the no pile. And he helped me over a week 
redo my resume. I sent it back to the company. They called me the same day. Isn't that incredible? One person mentors you, take, sees you, basically, mm-hmm. and makes it happen. That's phenomenal. Okay. And how long were you at Catherine's and what'd you do? I was there. I started out in allocations, uh, moved to assistant buyer, got promoted to associate buyer. And I was there maybe three, four years. But the moment I got in those doors, I was very clear, I'm moving to New York. So I don't know what I'm going to do in New York, but I do know I'm going to move to New York. And I went to New York for the first time for my 25th birthday with a group of girlfriends. It was maybe three months after I had gotten that job. And as soon as I got here, it was like, it was like a love story. I knew it was meant for me. You know, it was like love at first sight, but I knew that I loved it before I ever even saw it. That's incredible. And I think you worked for a production company or something, right? Yep, when I got here. And was that in kind of manufacturing production? Mm-hmm. There you go and you get to work hands-on with the product. And at what point did you say to yourself, why aren't there more people of color doing what I do? Why don't I see more people of color in design like, or any of these things? At what point did that kind of go... Something's really wrong here. I had seen it from our first job in retail. There were no black buyers. I need answers. I am a person that needs answers. You can't just tell me it's not okay. I need to know why. So I went up the ladder. I need to know. I need to understand why. And some of the things I heard were you're not aggressive enough, which is so funny. You're not aggressive enough. You're not assertive enough. We don't really feel like we know you. There were all of these Uh, things that I realized early. I was just in my early 20s that I had to make tweaks or I had to show up differently at work in order to get where I wanted to go. Because if I showed up as my authentic self at work, I would never be promoted. Interesting. And that's crazy. That that even comes out my mouth. Beyond crazy. And of course, there was a lot of code for Mm -hmm. you're not aggressive enough or whatever that was. And I'm sure you recognized it. So in New York, where one would think there would be more participation, an opportunity for people of color and fashion, there was not at that time. There still is not. But, uh, you know, so what started going through your head? It was after I started Harlem's Fashion Row that, and I was the second year I had started to look for designers who would be in the show. And when I started looking and I couldn't find them, so I looked at the New York Fashion Week schedule. I looked at all of these designers on department store website and I would go by designer by designer Clearly, I don't know because I am an outsider. I'm from Memphis. I hadn't come from a luxury background. So I just don't know. And that led me to discovering Lloyd's Alexander Lane, who created the Black Fashion Museum and the Harlem Institute of Fashion. Um, Her work is now preserved at the National African American Museum in D.C. But it led me to, to her work. It led me to so many other books that I have on my bookshelf now. And I realized that this challenge was this ongoing theme all the way from the 70s. That was when Lois Alexander Lane started. That for me was my moment of, okay, I have to do something. Like this is, 
<laughs> this is insane. Uh, was Harlem Fashion Row started more as a project and then you were like seeing all this, no, this is going to be my all in? It started as an idea. I'm going to do, you know, I had the idea. I went to a fashion show in Brooklyn. And while I was there, I thought, I want to do this in Harlem. At the time, I mean, Harlem was, oh my gosh, like the place to be when I first moved there. There were so many things happening. We were having these huge Harlem brunches. At my home, we had like what we call the hottest Harlem house party at my brownstone where we would have 200 people. I love that. There was so much energy that was happening. And I'm like, but I don't see a fashion scene in Harlem. And I want to create um, this fashion show to kind of bring this piece, right, to what we were all experiencing as you kind of like these young Black professionals in Harlem. And that was really idea at first. It wasn't like, oh, I saw this problem that existed and decided to create this. It was, no, I want to do this fashion show. And as I was doing it, it was like I would get these visions and these ideas and I would like start to write them all down. And initially I thought, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the Ebony Fashion Fair, but... Yes, of course. Initially, I thought, man, maybe this could be the new version of Ebony Fashion Fair. But as I started to specifically say, no, I really want to show designers of color and I couldn't find them, that for me was, that was the second year. That was really when my purpose was kind of matched with this passion because I had the passion for HFR before. I didn't know why I was so passionate about it. I just knew I couldn't stop talking about it. My friends were sick of it. They were just like five minutes without talking <laughs> about this idea. And when I found the problem, it was like, oh, now I get it. Now I know why I was supposed to do this. And so it was my second year that really solidified my purpose. That's incredible. And before we go on, for my listeners that don't really know what Harlem Fashion Row is, can you tell us about it, what your purpose is, and maybe some of the really great projects that you're doing. Absolutely. So we're a social company and we really act as a bridge between designers of color and brands. And we do that through collaborations, through partnerships, pipeline programs, experiential marketing and brand strategy. Our goal is after I researched and found out designers of color represented less than 1% of designers that were found in major department stores. And we see a shift, but we haven't gotten past maybe 3% even at this point. I went back to see how much money are Black and brown people spending in fashion and retail. And? And we spent, at the time, over $22 billion a year. And so there is this huge disparity that existed between the amount of money we were spending and how we were basically fueling so much of retail and fashion, but we had no power, no voice, no recognition. And my goal was, how does Harlem's Fashion Road change that? I know everybody would love to hear about the LeBron James, Nike, Harlem Fashion Row collaboration. So maybe you can talk about that, and I, I realized we probably leapfrogged over so many other exciting things that you did to get there, but that's big. I worked with Nike as a client for 16 years, and I know how hard it can be to navigate all of that. But of course, when you're working with LeBron, I'm sure it was actually 
quite easy, but it's very exciting because when you think about what you've built and as meaningful and big as it is, it still feels grassroots in a good way sometimes. So it feels like it sets such an important example for people that might think, gosh, I have to wait till I'm really big before I do something like that. So can you talk about how that came about and what that was like for you? And by the way, are there any shoes left and do they make them in a size six? <laughs> Which I'm sure the answer is no and no. Oh my goodness. So we had been working again every year. The one thing that we've done that's been consistent is a fashion show and style awards every single September. You know, we've honored Tracy Ellis Ross. We've honored Swiss Beats. We've honored Spike Lee. We've honored Stephen Burroughs. So many different people over the years. And we got to our 10th year, and it was the hardest year I had ever had. I thought people would come at the woodwork saying, oh, my gosh, you've made it to 10 years. I'm going to support you. But every step of the way was difficult, even up until the night of the event when it rained cats and dogs and we had to get tents last minute and I'm standing on the stage with water coming down my face presenting to Spike Lee. It was hard. So after that event, I said, I had a guy who was working with me on brand partnerships and he said, Brandis, what are you going to do for 2018? That was the next year. And I said to him, I don't know if I'm doing anything in 2018. I'm not doing a deck. I'm not making a calendar. I'm not making any plans for next year. And he was shocked because he had worked with me for years. And he, he said, what do you mean? And I said, I just need to pause. I am exhausted right now. And this has been so hard for me. I said, but the one thing I know that I want is a brand collaboration. So if you hear of a collaboration, let me know. It's the only thing I'm really interested in right now. And it's so funny when I go back to like faith. Yep. After I said that, what happened was I got an email two weeks where the same guy said to me, hey, there's a brand who reached out to me. Whatever you're doing in February, they said they want to partner with you on it. That's never happened before or after. So that was my sign. Okay, keep going. And then... I had committed to doing a fashion show every five years in Memphis because I don't believe in leaving a place that's given me so much and not giving back to it. I read that. I think that's so cool. That's just plain and simple. That's so cool. So we were doing this event, even at one of my lowest lows, we were doing this event at the famed Claiborne Temple, which is where the I Am A March speech was organized. And after that event, I got an email and it came from someone I had met with a few years prior. And she said, hey, look, I have this really incredible opportunity. It's by an athletic brand. I can't really tell you much more than that. Let me know if you're interested. We got on a call. She basically was the same level of vague on the phone call. And <laughs> she said, I'll send you over some documents, you know, of course, non-disclosure doc, and you can sign. And when they came through, I wasn't thinking Nike, that's for sure. But when it came through, it had the swoosh on it. And I was like, what? And so she was like, they want to move fast on this. So can we get on a call tomorrow with the brand manager? But she never told me that it was LeBron James. And so I get on this phone call. And at this point, I almost feel like I'm in a daze because I'm like, am I really on a call with Nike? And who is this? And so me and this woman are talking. And um, not to be underestimated, by the way. 
Huge. I mean, a moment. Yeah, a moment. <laughs> a, I, a moment. The entrepreneur in me, the mom in me, all the things says, yep, a moment. It was a moment. So I'm sitting in my car having a conversation with her, and she's telling me, you know, she tells me the athlete. She's like, it was Le- LeBron James, and he was making this statement about how Black women were the strongest and that they wanted to basically use this organic statement that he was just saying, very matter-of-factly, they wanted to be able to use that as inspiration for his next shoe. And, you know, do you happen to know any designers? All the years of me building decks for brands and coming up with ideas, and I, I didn't realize it was really practice for that moment because all she wanted from me was designers' names and their websites. But of course, I go and build a full deck. Can I just emphasize before you go on for anyone who will listen to this? Brandis, what you just said has been my experience with people that really stick into it, stick it out, and keep going. That every deck, everything you ever prepared, prepared you for that moment to be ready to know exactly what to do. And I just, that's so profound. And I, we do this so people can learn and be inspired and connect with people who, you know, we have such a wonderful community. And I just needed to emphasize that because it's very important. When you're just about to give up, when that thing comes, then it all makes sense. So please. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I sent over my deck and I you know, I thought through probably for days, who should I include? And the three designers we had just showed in September, as hard of a time I had, it was a struggle for them to even do that event. And so they were the three that I included for this opportunity. And I had the opportunity to present any designer for this. And so I put it in a deck and I didn't just present like, here's their past press and here is like their pieces. I actually told some of their personal stories and said, here is why. This designer showed up at my door. I had passed on this designer several times. They were relentless. And I kind of told like all these personal stories on each one of them and why I thought they were a perfect fit for this project. And they were supposed to pick one designer and they end up picking all three. And we were in Portland maybe, I don't know, two weeks later. Oh my God, I love that. And LeBron, of course, It's just the perfect person because he really is so committed to giving back and sharing his space and making sure that he's doing these very important things. So what happened? Like when it all got announced and was that game changing? I mean, it was game changing. You know, we... They had another way they were going to launch it. I proposed that they launch it by us honoring LeBron James at the event we had been doing every year and that we released the shoe there. And so and so we did. And I remember even when on the stage at that event, which we held at Capital, when we basically said and we created this shoe together, I could see people's, people's mouths were wide open like, what? And um, and then the shoes came out. And they and sold out in five minutes. They sold out in five minutes. So there's no size six for me. There's no size six. <laughs> um, <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about, without breaking any NDAs, of course, but just what the collaboration process was like? I mean, did the designers 
meet with LeBron and then go back and sketch some things up. And he kind of gave some feedback. And then you start looking at materials and where those amazing identities would go on the shoe. And, and of course, how many women's basketball shoes are designed by LeBron? First of all, LeBron James is amazing. His entire family, I have no idea how you can be one of the most well-known people on the planet and be so kind. And his mom, his wife, everyone I've ever met, his family, they are some of the kindest oh God, that's amazing to people hear. I've ever met. And the story LeBron really wanted to tell, which is one of the things that the designers had said was, Kimberly, I believe it was, had said, look, the shoe isn't going to be incredible, LeBron, but the real story is that people think that Black women can't work together, and we debunk that myth. People have that myth. I actually don't know that I know that. <laughs> it's a thing. And reality TV shows don't help, Karen. Ah, uh, of course. I don't watch them, so how would I know? So yes. there you go. Okay. So he, he said, that's the story I want to tell, but he was so attentive in our meeting with the designers and hanging on to their every words as they kind of told part of their stories. Um, so he, as a human being, is extraordinary. I think the foundation for the shoe really started with his team at Nike. Mm, he was the, the reason for it. Of course. And his, and his mom was the inspiration behind it. But I think that process really started at the Nike offices because when we got there, I was at such a low point. And I think sometimes low points can be a blessing in disguise because I had gotten to a place. Yes, I've had many. Right, where you just like, I said, either people take me as I am or not. I'm not interested in showing up anywhere in any other way. And I said that to the designers as we were, we were literally about to open the door to their Portland offices. And I said, either we come in here, we show up as ourselves, either they take us as we are or not at all. Yes. But we're not going to pretend that we're someone we're not when we get in this room. And so we got in the room, we introduced ourselves, and I cried <laughs> as I, I was talking that. about my journey I with HFR. It. I was like, oh my God, how did I start crying in Nike? And then the designers told their stories. And what happened was we had told so much of ourselves. And I said, we don't know you all. And there was like maybe 10 to 12 executives in the room. And I was like, I know your titles, but we don't know you. Mm. And they started, Lynn Merritt, who is like the OG, the general, she, he was the one who, if I'm not mistaken, like gave LeBron his first deal at Nike. Yes. And so he was the first one to open up and tell us his story. Uh about him being a little boy in Kentucky looking at the airplane saying that one day he was going it was my god so beautiful oh. <laughs> and of course the pastor's daughter once again <laughs> holds church you had church i like it i like it it was i love that you say that i've never heard anyone say that <laughs> but honestly isn't it isn't that what it is that's oh so my good gosh. That's what it was. And that was really, after that, we connected on a human level. And it wasn't about our titles or what we had done and what we hadn't done. We had all shared like a little piece of ourselves. And after that, everything else was easy. It's incredible. And how long did it take beginning to end before the shoe was launched? Uh, it took about six months. That's actually quick. That's Nike quick. 
As many of you know, we have resisted the notion of paid sponsorships so that we can use these in-between moments to share people, organizations, and social impact initiatives that we believe are so important and driving change around the world. It is in this spirit that we wanted to share Harlem's Fashion Rose new nonprofit, which we are excited to contribute to and to share with you. Systemic barriers, financial, racial, and social, have existed in the fashion industry since its inception. This has caused talented creators to be overlooked, leading to decades of missed opportunity and marginalization. For 14 years, Harlem's Fashion Row, better known as HFR, has created a bridge between black designers and retailers through collaborations, pipeline programs, and experiential events. In 2020, HFR launched a 501c3 nonprofit, Icon360, to address systemic barriers and COVID challenges black designers face. Their mission is to provide fashion designers of color with resources for sustainable business growth and legacy development. In 2020, Icon360 received a generous donation of $1 million from the CFDA and Vogue. This donation was a business lifeline for over 25 black designers. Later this year, Icon360 will launch an endowment campaign. HFR invites retailers to join them in changing the course of fashion by creating a new legacy. This important endowment will ensure that black fashion designers will be seen, heard, and supported for generations through your support please go to www.hfricon360.com for more details. Thank you. I want to step into the issues that we're dealing with today. Certainly, I think people like yourself and all people of color have been dealing with these issues from birth one way or another. And I reached out to you because, you know, I needed to take some time to really think about where am I with all of this? And when I started to think about systemic racism and unconscious bias, what I really came to is, is that Unconscious bias, it's actually what we think with. It's not something we think about. It's just there. But I think what's important, at least for me, what was important was to say, when it's unconscious, it drives your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. And sometimes we actually don't know it, hence unconscious. So when we bring awareness to that unconscious kind of belief system, it opens up, I think, an opportunity to really have these honest conversations and also find partners to really kind of help us do things that are very genuine and are not performative. And we can really help and make a difference, which is why I wanted to meet you. So hearing me say that, how does that make you feel? And can you say a little bit about this whole notion of first unconscious bias and then, I guess, systemic racism, which is, in my view, a byproduct of unconscious bias? 
What happened differently last year than any other time in my lifetime is that we have swept slavery under the rug. We've almost pretended like, yes, it happens, but everything's great now. That was so long ago, and when in fact it wasn't. And because as a country, we've never looked at it and had real dialogue uh, or solutions on how do you make that right? Because as a country, it's never been fully discussed except a blip in a history book. Um, and even in the history books, it's not a conversation that we, we have. And what I really thought was quite different and the reason I had a glimmer of hope that maybe we're at a place where this is going to be sustained and long-term change is because we started to actually have the conversations about systemic racism, about where it stems from, about slavery as it was very real, about Jim Crow. Like we actually started to have these conversations that were so uncomfortable for this country to have. It was like peeling back (laughs) a layer that had existed. So much pain everywhere. It was painful for me. I'm just going to speak for myself personally Mm -hmm. because even as a Black woman, so much I have to almost, I almost have to push some things down so far to be able to keep moving forward, right? But last year, it was all brought up. It was so on the surface and I had friends who were calling me from, you know, CEOs of, of retailers to, you know, some of my friends that are a lot of friends that are CMOs of, of companies, non-black. And they were calling me like, Brandis, I just, like, I'm just calling you to see how you do. And I couldn't even get through a conversation at that time without crying. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I just can't, I just can't talk to you about this right now. But when we did start to have those conversations, they were some of the realest and honest and most vulnerable conversations I have ever had with my non-Black colleagues. It's never happened before. Incredible. So, you know, even hearing you say that, Karen, honesty and transparency and vulnerability in this space it's appreciated. It really is. And, that, and the fashion and retail industry has had to take a, a long, hard look at itself and say, you know, where do I stand? That's why I love Aurora's pledge and, yes. and the Blacks and Fashion Council, because people are actually having to look at their numbers. Yes. It's incredibly important. And with everything else, the data is the only thing that matters. When you're talking about a sales goal, you can't come into a shareholders meeting and say, we're going to do much better the next quarter. That doesn't work. No, exactly. So why don't these numbers count? They do. So why don't so why don't these numbers count? And why can't we put numbers around this? We have a long way to go. And to be honest, my fear is that we're already starting to move away from some of the commitments that were made. And so as an industry, you know, we all have a huge responsibility as an industry that is, you know. Fashion is supposed to be one of the most inclusive industries. Totally. And when it comes to race, it's one of the worst offenders. Yes. And I guess what we're reminded of is that 
it is an industry of privilege. Yes. Which is unfortunate. And that's why I talk about my own experience, because I think the awareness is what we need. You know, awareness to behavior or to beliefs for me is like fire to wood. It burns it up and you can choose to ignore it or you can choose to recognize it and do your part to make that change. But I think that, at least for me and the way I roll is, you know, that's very important. But the industry and the surrounding adjacent, whether we're talking about publishing or whether we're talking about casting or whether we're talking about design, whether we're talking about CEOs, CMOs, photographers, directors, the whole mix. And yet we appreciate Black culture a lot in this industry. So what do you think about that? And you're doing so many things to help people make the change. How I see you is kind of three ways. One, this incredible entrepreneur, innovator, who followed her dream, went through all the genuine ups and downs. You also guide you guide brands, you guide talent, you really provide the how. Because I often think that the awareness without the methodology and the access to that talent or to that program or to what should the numbers be and how should we get there, people don't know what to do, actually. No, you're absolutely right. Our goal is to be a bridge. That is who I am at the heart, and that is who HFR is. But I think you start to make progress by having the conversations, by saying, here is where we are, here's where we'd like to be, or better yet, here is where we will be. Now, let's think about how we get there and how do we bring on the right partners to get us there. Yes, Because I know companies are in that place. I get it. They're in that place where they're like, I'm not really sure what to do. And one of the things that we've done over the last few years, starting really with our partnership with Nike, was to say, what are the opportunities and what are some of the programs that we can build to kind of meet this need and become a solution that that allows companies to evolve, to get there, right? To make progress slowly. Because also to make progress too fast is not realistic. You know, it could be, it could do more harm yes. than, it, yes. than it can yes. help. Yes. So I really do think that, you know, the programs that we have come up with, it's all about how do we help companies evolve to get there? But the companies also have to be willing to make a commitment. Yes. And say, this is where we'll be. But now let's work backwards and say, how do we get there? And by the way, that's not abnormal for a company. That's how they reach sales goals. How do they? Yes, of course. Right. They say, we're going to grow by 25% next year. Category goals, expansion goals, digital, you know. Yes. You and I have talked a lot about what companies need to do to make this happen. And we said together It's not really just about the numbers because one can start increasing the numbers of talent across the board of black and brown or underrepresented talent, whatever that is. 
but there has to be space for them to feel like they can be themselves the same way before you're pulling the door open at that amazing campus, which I went to at Nike for so many years, just to look at everybody and say, literally, we need to just be ourselves and have that confidence. And I have been very open with you in that I want to partner with you in this regard, because I think that how do companies make space to let, especially designers, frankly, come in and be themselves and how does the culture create space for them? Do you have thoughts about that? Absolutely. One of the things I saw at Nike was I saw these three black female designers who had never worked on footwear before come in and be able to offer so much Mm. because of their journeys and because of what they've had to work with. They were able to offer so much to that design team. And, and that shoe and the way that it was shipped and the way it came with its, uh, an additional bracelet, all of that was stuff that that team had never done before. And then I also saw how the designers at Nike were, you know, so influential for these three designers. So I saw almost this win-win relationship that was happening. And from that, I thought, what if we built out a program that would allow a designer to go into a brand as themselves, not as I'm going in to be what you want me to be, but let me go in as the entrepreneur that I am. Let me come into your office, work with you for six months on a project, you know, whatever that project is, but work with you on a project, but I am not coming in at the moment as an employee. So I'm coming in as an entrepreneur. And during that six months, what I know will happen, because I've seen it happen, is that if that company allows that designer to be themselves, they're going to learn so much from that designer. Yes. And that designer is going to learn so much from them. And at the end of that six months, they can really decide, do we want to get married? Maybe at that point, the designer goes, wait a minute, this is incredible, I could actually see myself working in-house for that brand, or that brand may say, wait a minute, they're amazing. We, they're what we never even knew we needed. And so we want to bring that designer in-house. So it could be that, or it could be that designer goes back and do their own thing, but they all it is a no-lose situation. It's a win-win. Everybody walks out change. Everyone walks out having had the opportunity. Um, but we call that our Designer Entrepreneur in Residence Program because it gives brands an opportunity to open their doors in a way that is you get to date. Yes. But at the same time, you also get to potentially open your doors to a new pipeline of talent. Yes, and... I think there's an important thing you're not mentioning, which is these designers intimately know the consumers that the designers are trying to create for. They know the consumer. You know, a company like Nike is obsessed with the consumer, and that's why they nail it time and time and time again. And so I think this other part is... Also tell me about your life and your journey because there are millions of our consumers. What did you say? $22 billion spent by people of color with these luxury and fashion brands? Like that's a lot of people. Absolutely. And the more you understand, not from just the rock star talent, but that emerging talent that still 
every day sitting with those consumers and living life. So there's so much, there's so much there. Absolutely. You're basically having your consumer come into your brand, but they're a designer as well, and be able to give you insights that you can't research. Exactly. You can't, you can't research. There are not enough focus groups. <laughs> no. Online or surveys or data that you cannot, you cannot. It's so inspiring. And when I think about I get very, I get chills when I think about this kind of program. But then, of course, on the other side of what I do for a living, on the talent side, the executive search side, I have to admit it is a constant struggle to identify black and brown talent on the designer side of things. And if we had time, I could give you all my beliefs and reasons why, but Systemic racism. Yes. <laughs> that's that's yes. the easy, that's that's the the easy answer. answer. That's it. So then you have to, because what's happening is people are just opening the door. You're opening the door and going, well, we can't find the talent. Well, if you really go back and look at systemic racism, you realize that most Black people are first or second generation college students. Our parents, we weren't allowed to no. go to, to, to Parsons for fashion school if you're second generation. So that means you have to put programs in place to account for that, right? Exactly. Is the talent there? 1,000%. But you may have to take an untraditional route to tap that talent. Well, it's so incredibly important because it really does start, I think, and we've talked about this, at the yes. high school stage, right? Like when a kid is thinking about college and that pressure that you had. But I do think, and I talked to you about this, like, helping parents also understand at these high school stages and having schools really make space, not just programs, but like make space and create. And then the companies really working with the schools because I do think it's important. Yes. We're doing a pipeline program right now with HBCU students. Amazing. We haven't announced it yet, but a company just actually donated um, half a million dollars um, to Icon 360 so that we could fund fashion departments at these schools. They are grossly underfunded. And it does start at that high school and college level. I think once people decide in college that we actually want to work in fashion, one of the ways that we can all help is say, you know, okay, how then can we make sure that this fashion department is set up yes. so that these students are competitive once they graduate? Yes, and really get the best training, the most exposure, the internships, the everything that are so important, the opportunity. Absolutely. And I think education is extremely important and not that, I mean, many, many successful designers of you know, before and today don't have that design education. They come at it very differently. But I think it's very, very important because it's not just about the drawing. It's not just about, it's about being in that world and being able to draw from all of those experiences that, you know, you only get when you're in college, no matter what it is that you're studying. And that's an incredible accomplishment. A half a million dollars is a lot of money. And what will it look like? What is the, you know, sort of the fashion department and it's like soup to nuts, ateliers, 
educators, people to come in? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so the schools will be able to apply for the funds. And our goal is half a million dollars is going to help us get there, but it's, it's not it. require. No, 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 <laughs> it's no, no, no. Require it's a, a beginning. So, it's a so, beginning. But it is going to allow us to, you know, I've gone into big HBCUs and they've only had one working sewing machine. And so it's going to allow the schools to get the equipment that they need to be able to bring in speakers that they want to be able to bring in to do the types of programs and to incentivize the students to really, you know, present their best work. You know, as we think about that kind of fear of, okay, we've had the dialogue, we're maybe hopefully COVID, we're getting vaccinated, people are starting to come to life again. How do we keep it alive? How do we make sure that we're holding our feet to the fire? I think it's what you did, Karen. You just reached out. You know, we reached out. We had a great conversation. We were able to find ways that we could partner together, ways that we were aligned. So there are so many movements that have come up in the last year. So when people were saying, there's too many things that are happening, I was like, absolutely not. This eliminates all excuses yes. because there are so many organizations that that need support. You know, whether, again, that's Blacks and Fashion Council, there's Bragg, who's been around for, Bragg has been around for, I think, 20 or 25 years now. Oh, I did not know it was that long, actually. Yes. Wow. They have one of the best internship programs out there that companies can get involved with. I just don't think people know. They don't know? Well, we're going to have to change that, aren't we? Absolutely. But there are so many ways because there are so many different organizations that have come up in, in ways for companies and individuals to support. That's incredible. So I know you just did uh, maybe a digital forum where you had some incredible people speaking. What was that like? Who was it for? Will you do it again? Can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah. So last year we pivoted pretty quickly in the pandemic because I wanted to start the nonprofit Icon 360. So we did a digital event to launch that nonprofit. But in that process, we learned how to do digital events. And so we've had a fashion summit now for the last three years. This normally hosted at Google's corporate office in Chelsea. And we work with their fashion department there at Google to put it on. And this year, we knew it would have to be digital. And because it's happening during Black History Month, that event has always focused on race and fashion. And this year allowed us to really go a lot more broad with it. So we had professors from HBCUs there talking about what it was that they needed. We had uh, Joyce Brown, who's the um, president of FIT there um, speaking. Yeah, she's so yeah, great. she's amazing, speaking about the initiative um, that, that she has. And that was Beth Ann Hardison. And we closed the day. I love Beth Ann. She's incredible. Yes, she <laughs> is. Beth Ann is the Beth OG. Beth Ann is it. <laughs> she is the badass of badasses. I have she is. Love it. And then I wanted to close the day with Tom Ford. And so we had a keynote talk with Tom Ford that was so good. Oh, I love Tom. Love Tom. He's the best. It was so good. Boy, the tentacles of Brandis Daniel are are stretching everywhere, and I feel like they're not done yet. What do you see going forward? What are What are the things you haven't done yet and want to do? And for everyone listening... We're going to talk a little bit about how to connect with you and 
you and I'll talk about how to do that in a moment. But yeah, what's next? What What's next for you? Yeah, our next big project is a $50 million endowment fund that we are going to start raising for. Um, we're working on setting up the foundation for that at this moment. Amazing. And so that's that's what I'm most excited about right now. Um, we also have a designer retreat that we're doing in partnership with um, Nike that's coming up in our fashion show and style awards that will take place um, in September. We're doing something very different. I can't wait. For that, but I I'm excited. Wait. We have to be there, Karen. Yes, please. Yes, please. But the endowment is all about how do we make sure that there is never a lack of funding for designers of color. How do we set something up now that can outlast and outlive all of us? And that's really a legacy play as an industry. I mean, it's a great moment to ask how, how do people contribute? What does it look like? Does it come from a foundation of a brand or does it come from, can the funds come from somewhere else? Like, how do you think about this? Usually um, they come from, they would come from a foundation mm-hmm. of a brand. And um, our, if you don't mind, I can give our website. Please, so people can no, go there. please. It's, it's hfricon360.com. If they go there, they can reach out, you know, directly and we will start to give them information. But I will tell you, they will hear about it. <laughs> it will not be. <laughs> oh, no. It is not. A, it is. I'm actually, this is my first time even speaking about it here. But this will, they will hear about this and it will be very loud. So once everything is in place for that, the entire industry will, you won't miss it. Trust I me. You'll have an so opportunity excited. to be involved. Well, I, and I will be. I'm signing up right now. You know, I've, I'm enrolled for anything Brandis Daniel does anywhere, anytime, any place. And I really do mean that. And from my first reach out to you, I hoped that I would feel that way. You know what I mean? Like, we had a great connection. Karen. Well, you know what? You know, sometimes people say, must meet this person, you must meet this person, and I do. And I'm like, ah, you know, you just don't want to be disappointed, and you just blew me away. So it was uh, very exciting, and I wanted you to be here. You know, is there anything I didn't give you a chance to speak about that you would love to share? And is there, can you take us to church for a minute and give us a little bit of that thing that you you do when I am bleary-eyed when I wake up in the morning and there you are on Instagram Live, you telling me I can do anything I want to do if I put my mind to it? I think this is such a great opportunity for all of us, right, to do something that's never been done before. We have the opportunity right now to make history as an industry for people of color. And every time I speak on any platform, I want to represent the designers that I work with. I want to give them a voice through myself. And I can tell you that the designers that we work with, most of them come from a place where they are starting from nothing. This is real 
bootstrapping. This mm-hmm. is, I can't call my mother. I can't call my aunt. I don't have a family friends. I'm going to work a nine to five job to be able to fund this. I'm going to take part of that paycheck and be able to fund this business. And that's how I'm going to start. Mm. The reason I go so hard for designers of color, because it's one of the hardest things that a person can decide to do. Yes. It, it requires so much money And you already know that the cards are stacked against you, but they decide every single day to show up and keep trying to give their best. And for me, it is so inspiring to see their spirit, to see their tenacity, to see their hope, and to see their faith, no matter what the world tells them. And if they can keep waking up like that every single day, I will keep supporting them. And all I ask is that you guys join me. That is an amazing, you have signed me up, as you know. (laughs) And the 35,000 whatever people out there that, you know, show up to listen to these amazing conversations that I have, I'm sure will be incredibly inspired. And, and Brandis, I've learned so much from you since the first conversation. And I continue to want to put myself in that place so you can keep sharing and showing the way. And, you know, so thank you. Karen, thank you. Thank you for this moment, for this conversation. I appreciate our very first conversation. You were So honest and transparent. And I remember on that call, I was so exhausted from other things and you were so gracious. So thank you so much for the work that you've done. And I'm excited about what we'll do together as well. Me too. And I think we sometimes do some of our best work when we're exhausted because we can't even put up that thing we don't want to put up because it's all, we left it all in the field an hour before. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our program. You can subscribe to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Fashion Tech Forum in the studio is a production of FTF and Charts and Leisure, co-produced by my amazing co-founder of FTF and Index, Maya Wojcik, and Megal Janardin of Charts and Leisure. The program is executive produced by Jason Oberholzer and me, and our theme music was written and performed by the wonderful Michael Simonelli. Thank you again for joining Fashion Tech Forum in the studio, and I look forward to seeing you soon.